to bring them to us today. Thankful for the opportunity to study and be here with you. Preparation, I was thinking about this idea of pending doom and times in my life where I had experienced a sense of pending doom. I was reminded um, when I was a brand new, uh, wasn't, I don't know why people do this, but I was a fairly new Christian and somebody made me a youth pastor and um, very dangerous and and Rob having a unique sense of adventure probably added to it. And so I, I loaded up a bunch of teenage boys and we went to go play paintball. And so we had two different cars, two church vans, and um, I was in one car and then some kids were in the other one. And when we got out, there was a paintball gun laying next to my driver's seat. And we got out and the kids were pouring out and I decided enough wasn't enough. So, and the gun was still loaded. So they were getting out and I just started shooting from the hip. And if you've ever played paintball, if you get some paint in the gun, they will often, it causes the paintballs to spin real funny, and they'll do weird things. Well, one of the kids' name was Brock. He was this tall, thin kid, and he was visiting from another um, church. And a blue paintball hit him right square between the eyes, and he fell backwards and grabbed his face and screamed and was rolling around on the parking lot. And I just, the, my, you know how this happens? Like within seconds, you're realizing all kinds of things. What was I thinking? I just shot this kid's eye out. He won't be able to see for the rest of his life. My job is over. It, you know, all those things running through your mind. Well, thankfully, he rolled around. And as I was running over there, he jumped up. He had blue splattered from right here back in the middle of his forehead and he jumped up and said, I'm okay, I'm okay. Uh, But he had went home with this gigantic welt right between his eyes and I thought for sure I was going to get a call from his mother. Later, Brock went on to um, the earlier forms of the UFC and bar Brock boxing and tough man contests and I just chalk it up to I helped him along his way. But I do remember after that, literally laying awake thinking that could have went really, really bad. And like what caused me great internal difficulty, like what if, what if I wasn't rescued from that? Yesterday I was talking to somebody, Mary and I were house parents and we had troubled teenage boys. One of those boys' names was Frank. And I was remembering this because we're getting a cliff, limestone cliff drops straight off. You can look over the river and you can repel. So it was teaching the boys some repelling and took this kid's name was Frank. That as Frank started over, you kind of have to lean back on your harness. There's a trust element. So you're leaning over this cliff, 90 feet to the bottom. And Frank got nervous and he let go of the rope and he grabbed a hold of the rock. And at that point, I rem- and it locks up their harness and they can't move. I didn't have that. So I immediately said, Peter, run down to the bottom of the mountain. And I said, Frank, you have to grab a hold of that rock. You- I mean, the rope. 
you've got to let go with one hand and hold the rope. And then you've got to let go. You've got to hold the rope. Well, thankfully, after I calmed him down, he did that. Peter would have not made it if Frank would have let go of the rope. For days, I lost hours of sleep thinking, what would have happened if Frank would have let go of that rock and not grabbed a hold of the rope? How would I have changed Frank's life? How would my life be changed? This idea of facing pending doom. Some of you can relate. None of us have, some of us maybe, have faced life and death situations. Maybe some of those were even at your own willful choice. But this idea of pending doom and then being released from it. The gratitude and the peace and yet this treachery of remembering that I was here by some of my own naivety, some distractions, and then also just willfully ignoring things I knew to be true. Right? I remember thinking about this whole experience and these two experiences, and when you guys can probably relate, you start thinking, well, I kind of knew, but I didn't. Well, but, but if this, but no, no, I ignored that. And you don't know how to make sense of it. And just remembering this pending doom and then being released. I was avoided. I had avoided great doom. And I was really grateful. What we need to understand is Paul unpacks his letter to the Romans. This is a fairly, this is the point of his letter. And we're going to get to that today in verses 8 through 16 of chapter 1. But really what it is that Paul is doing here is he's reminding the Romans that we have avoided great doom and we've been given in replace of that a great reward we've avoided great doom and we've been we've gained a great reward my tension in preparation for today was how do i teach something Lord that's so familiar to us and yet so powerful we're going to jump right into verse 16 and 17 it is the thesis of Paul's thought some people say it's the entire thesis for the book of Romans and Paul opens this section these two verses saying For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, also to the Greek. So we're going to start here. We're going to kind of start at the back 
part. We're going to start at the end and then we're going to work ourselves backwards. So it's going to kind of look like this. We're going to talk about the proposition of the gospel. Proposition just means central truth, right? And so I'm using all P's, so I had to find a different word, but it's still a good word. The proposition, the central truth of the gospel, verses 16 and 17, verse 6, 17. Then we're going to talk about the power of the gospel in verse 16. We're going to see an example of how these, the power, the proposition and the power work themselves out in Paul's life of his passion for the gospel, verses 8 through 15. And then lastly for us in the application is the practicality of the gospel, the application. This is something that we know in our hearts, even as we read in that reading that Nick led us in. This is not just thoughts. The gospel changes our life and living. So let me read through this, and then we're going to, like I said, start at the end. Verse 8, For I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because of your faith, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I might, might now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I might impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I might reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. And so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So when Paul speaks here of the power of the gospel as salvation to everyone who believes, the power Paul is talking about is contained in what he calls the good news of God when he opens the book. He says, for it, or for in it, verse 17 the righteousness of God is revealed. And that it is the gospel. It has the power of God for salvation to all believe. Now, we're using that term a lot. We've mentioned this last week. It's a very familiar term to us. But let's remember what it is. It's the good news that God gives us righteousness in place of our unrighteousness. He exchanges our unrighteousness for righteousness through Christ and Christ's work on our behalf. It's that simple. It's the good news of God making us righteous through Jesus. 
So he says, for in it, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. So the question is, salvation, what are we being saved from? What is the doom that the Romans were facing and we are facing apart from God in which they are saved? The answer to that question, Paul actually gets to in verse 18. He says this, For the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So this is where Paul is going. The power of God that Paul is talking about is the ability to save us from his wrath against sin. Jason's going to be teaching about this next week. He's going to be um, spending some time here. So we don't need to go into detail. Um, But it's necessary that we peek into the future passages so we know what it is that Paul is talking about here in verses 16 and 17. When he's talking about the gospel's power to save us, we need to realize that it's a power that's so powerful that it saves us from something, some kind of tremendous doom. What's the doom? It's what God will do against sin. God hates sin. Hates it. He hates the destructiveness of it. He hates what it did and does to relationships. He hates what it did and does to his creation. He hates it. And one day, he will turn his anger in wrath against sin, and he will completely destroy it. It will be utterly evil sin will one day be utterly destroyed, completely destroyed altogether. He will unleash his wrath against the poison of sin that has hurt his family, his people, his creation. And sin will be utterly destroyed. It will be consumed. Now we would normally cheer for such justice to be doled out. If we see this in a movie and there's all kinds of evil going on and somebody comes in and destroys that evil and sets it right, doesn't that do something good for our hearts? And so we would normally, we would normally rejoice at such justice. But the problem is for sin to be destroyed, we actually contain without in and of ourselves, we contain the very sin That God will set out to destroy. It's dissipated in sin. We are the sin that God will destroy in his wrath. It's not just that we contain it in it. It's impending doom. These little stories I told you at the beginning pale in comparison. Could you imagine your family facing the consequence of death? Because of the sum of the choices that you have made. Could you imagine what that would be like for me, with me for a moment? What if your wife, your family were facing death because of some of the choices that you had made? Would that not be an utter sense of what the heck was I thinking? Why did I do this? 
why would I choose to act that way? Oh, to be able to take it back and to do something different, to be able to save my family. What can I do? What can I do? That sense of pending doom, we really need to feel that, church. And I'm trying to do that without manipulating you. But we really do need to feel the weight and understand the weight of our doom. Because it's in understanding the weight of the doom and then the release of it is where we find the power that Paul is talking about of the gospel. Paul's life was radically transformed. We know that, true? Why was it radically transformed? Because he knew the pending doom that he was released from. But Paul says the gospel, the good news of God that all points to Jesus is the powerful proposition, the truth, which saves us from our condition. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile, and everybody in between. How? How does that work? How does the gospel do that? By God sacrificially, it cost him. Remember Abraham, the blood sacrifice, the animals rent in half? By God sacrificially giving us His righteousness and taking our sin. That's how it happens. And then He puts on us mission and then rewards us for our efforts. We have avoided a great doom and gained a great reward. In the gospel, the good news of Jesus. That's the proposition. That's the truth of the gospel. We were facing great doom. And we get great reward. At the end of verse 17, we read where Paul says, the righteous shall live by faith. He's actually quoting an Old Testament passage out of the book of Habakkuk, which we studied a couple years ago. Chapter 2, verse 4. The righteous shall live by faith. Paul is using this Old Testament passage as a support that his statement about righteousness coming by faith is not a new concept. He's wanting to help his readers understand that righteousness coming by faith isn't something that started now. This has been the way it's always been. Paul quotes uh, Habakkuk again to the Galatians in chapter 3, verse 11. And he says this, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. Then he says, For the righteous shall live by faith. He's quoting this over and over to make two points. One, the obvious one, the righteousness of God does not come about by our own efforts. That's his first point. The second point he's wanting to make is that righteousness by faith is always the way that God had worked. And then additionally, at the beginning of Romans 17, when he says, for the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, 
he means that the origin of that faith is the origin of righteousness we obtain righteousness by faith faith is the origin of righteousness but faith faith is also the continuation of righteousness in other words we we get righteousness by faith and we grow in righteousness by faith this is what we've been seeing since the last several weeks in both Genesis and now in the first part of Romans. And we've been saying this, the life of a Christian is one of hearing and heeding God's call. Remember? The life of a Christian is one of hearing and responding to God's call in faith. Or, as Paul says it, from faith for faith to say it again in a different way christianity is entered into by faith and continues by faith and paul wants us to know by quoting habakkuk that's the way it's always been abraham had to believe by faith for the messiah who was to come the disciples and the New Testament believers had to believe by faith that Jesus was the promised Messiah in their presence. True? Not everybody believed. And we must believe by faith that Jesus was the promised Messiah who came and will again Himself come. So how does... Faith work in the continuation of our sin. What does that mean? What does it mean that we continue in faith? Well, we believed God once unto salvation, unto righteousness, and now we believe Him for our righteousness. So when He says, do not return evil for evil, in our human mind, we would say, well, that makes no sense. True? That doesn't work in the human planet. But yet, I will do what you say by faith. Or when he says, children, obey your parents. You might think, well, that doesn't make sense to me. But I will obey you in faith. I'm not going to do the way my mind works and judge your words according to mine. I'm going to, in faith, believe what you say and then judge my thoughts according to you. In your sexual lives, whatever that means, sexual immorality, all the sexual craziness we've got going on in our culture, don't deviate from my plan. When God says, don't be deviant in your sexual lives, well, that doesn't make sense to me in my human mind, but God, I will obey you in faith. When he says, extend forgiveness, even to your enemies, well, that doesn't make sense to me, but I will obey you in faith, even when I don't understand. Husbands, lead. Wives, follow. Well, that doesn't make sense to me. Culture doesn't like that, But I'm not going to go by my mind. I'm going to go by yours. This is how we continue in faith. Are you with me? This is how we grow. And we don't often, I don't know about you, the older I get, the less I feel like it. 
when he says, honor me with your first fruits of your finances, joyfully be a giver. Well, that doesn't make sense to me, but I will obey you in faith. Don't return evil for evil, but good for evil. That doesn't make sense to me, but I will obey you in faith. We come to righteousness in faith and we continue in righteousness in faith. The life of a Christian is a life of hearing and heeding the call of God. And when we hear the first call and we respond by trusting by faith, we are given Christ's righteousness for our unrighteousness. And when we hear the ongoing call of God and respond by obeying in faith, we experience the power of the gospel and his righteousness flows through us to others. Now, some of you may be saying like me, man, I understand the gospel. But I don't seem, I feel like I experience its power. Have you ever said that? Or maybe even you are currently. I'm going to argue, I think what Paul is saying is most likely that's because we are hearing but not responding to God's call to righteousness. When I was a kid, I went on a missions trip uh, to North Carolina. And to, we were in the mountains. And outhouses, no running water, the whole deal. And Ian grew up like this. He's like, uh, that's not a missions trip. That's my childhood. <clears throat> But we would take these gallon jugs and we had to go to a spring and the spring was literally there was a rock face with a with a rusty pipe sticking out of it and out of it flowed this amazing cold um, clear sweet water. The water flowed from the pipe but the pipe was not the source. Disconnect the pipe from the source and it no longer produces water. It is simply just an old rusty pipe. What's my point? My point is this. God is the source of righteousness and no righteousness comes apart from God. You cannot generate your own righteousness. You are only and always a pipe you're only and always a conduit of righteousness. You and me have no righteousness of our own. We must be connected to God in relationship or righteousness does not flow out of us. You following me? So Christ would say it this way. Our king and our teacher, he would say, if you're not abiding, you have no fruit. If you're not connected to the source, no righteousness is flowing out of you. Church, if we are not connected with God and we are not seeking his life to be flowing through us, there is no righteousness. If you're not experiencing the power of the gospel that Paul is talking about, it's because you are either not connected to the source of righteousness or you're not allowing the righteousness of Christ to flow through you as a conduit and onto other people. 
And the way that that happens is by us saying, not my will be done, but yours, O Lord. I would do it this way, but by faith, I'm going to do it this way. And that's when we experience the power of the gospel. And that's not, that is not an experiment. That's a truthful reality. That's the way it is. It is a law of the universe. You do what God says and righteousness flows through you. Living water. And church, this is the passion of the gospel. Okay, some of you had said, said to me over the years, Rob, I appreciate your passion when you teach. Sometimes it comes out a little bit more than others. And, but passion doesn't always look like what I do. Okay, some of you are very uh, quiet and subdued, but you're very passionate. I'm not talking be about being loud and energetic. I'm just talking about being utterly consumed and committed. And Paul was a man who was utterly consumed and committed. He was passionate about the gospel. Why? Because he understood the proposition and the power of it. So when we're hearing and heeding the call of God in our lives, we respond with a passion for the gospel and we see its power come to life in our life. And we see this by way of example in Paul's life. And we could unpack a lot here, but I'm going to run through verses 8 through 15 and just would encourage you to spend some time here because if, you, if, if, if you're catching what I'm laying down, the reality of the power of the proposition, the truth of the gospel, we're under a pending doom, the power of it when we realize what we've been released from and who we're connected to, that will you see these realities in Paul's life lived out. So in verse 8, Paul says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because of your faith is proclaimed in all the world. He gives thanks to them give thanks to God for them because their faith is moving. It's flowing out like it's supposed to be. Paul is grateful. He's thankful. So in verse 8, Paul is expressing gratitude and thanksgiving. And we've talked about this quite a bit in the last, last several months, but how absolutely critical gratitude and thanksgiving is for our growth and change. And one of the very first things we see out of the mouth of Paul when he's passionate about the gospel is gratitude. And he opens almost every one of his letters this way. Paul is thankful. In verse 9, Paul is prayerful. For God is my witness that without ceasing I mention you in my prayers the truth of the gospel and the power of the gospel makes Paul thankful and it makes him prayerful. In verse 11, it also makes him missional. For I long to see you that I might impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. For I long to see you that I might give you something. Hey church, this is the guy who was dragging Christians out of their homes and beating them. No, the power of the gospel. How does that happen? Because Paul said, well, the way I would do it 
was be, I'd be dragging these people out of their homes and beating them, even killing them. But I'm going to submit to you and the way you do it. And so Paul says, I long to see you that I might give something to you. This is the power of the gospel. And then verse, backing up to verse 10, but then also verse 13, Paul is hopeful. I've often intended to come to you. Verse 13, and then verse 10, I may now at least succeed in coming to you. Paul is hopeful that God will fulfill his plans for him. And whatever God wants, actually, Paul never does, uh, never. Paul doesn't get to Rome as soon as he wanted to. It will be three years before Paul actually is, uh, sees the fulfillment of him making it to Rome. And then he goes in chains as a prisoner. But he's hopeful. He knows. You see this all throughout his life and his letter. That God is going to do exactly what he wants to do. In verse 14 we see that Paul is obligated. He says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians. Paul has been given a trust by God. And he is obligated to deliver the powerful message of the gospel. Tim Keller says it's not obligated as if you like say Bob lend me a hundred dollars and I'm obligated to give him that hundred dollars back. A better example is that God gives me a hundred dollars and says I want you to give this to Bob and I am obligated to, to God to give that gift to Bob. And Paul is obligated to give this gift that he's been given to these fellow believers and unbelievers. So the power and the passion, oh, and then in verse 15, Paul is eager. The gospel, the good news about Christ, the truth of that, the power of it, changes his life, and he's eager to preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to those who are in Rome. The power and the passion in Paul's life flow from the fact that That Paul is a man who is joyfully consumed with the good news that rescued him. Paul is a man joyfully consumed with the good news of God. Which he was rescued. This was the power that changed his life. And it's the passion that drives him. Let's fast forward 1,500 years to another man who was joyfully consumed with the good news by which he was rescued. Martin Luther was another man desperately seeking to save himself from his own doom by his good works. And for years, Lutations for righteousness, the more he struggled. This was had a lot to do with the fact that the church that Luther was a part of taught that God makes people righteous as they make themselves righteous. I grew up this way. You do something, God kind of works alongside you. But it is up to you. And then you start, God kind of joins you and helps you. But Luther worked tirelessly to make himself righteous by keeping the law and serving the church. The problem was he knew himself all too well and he knew the secret sins hidden in his life and he knew the weight of his own sin and he could not bear it 
And he knew that while his good works might appease his own conscience, they would do nothing to satisfy a righteous and holy God. And so he actually says this, Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. In other words, I couldn't believe that God was satisfied just because my conscience was clear. I still am a sinner. Then he says this, I did not love, yes, I hated righteousness. I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God. So whenever Martin Luther would come upon the term righteousness, whether it referred to God himself or whether it it referred to who Martin was supposed to be, Luther knew, I have no hope. And I'm simply burdened by religious activity. And the result was that Luther hated righteousness. Who could blame him under that understanding? But one day... Martin Luther was reading the words of Paul right here in chapter 1. Paul, who is the king of self-righteous pursuits himself. And he hears these words from Paul. Chapter 1, verse 17. The righteous shall live by faith. And Martin Luther describes reading those words like a lightning bolt to his soul and conscience. His heart exploded and erupted. Romans 1.17 changed his life. Or rather, the truth, the central concept of the gospel, the righteous shall live by faith, changed Martin Luther's life. And church history. The gospel is powerful to change the world because the gospel is powerful to change a life. What was this lightning bolt power for Luther? It was the reality that he had avoided great doom and gained a great reward. That was the power. That was this disrupting force in Martin Luther's life and Paul's and ours. We have avoided great doom and gained A great reward. Where? In hearing and heeding the good news of Jesus. My church family, through God's good news in Jesus, we have avoided a great doom and gained a great reward. Let that sink in. Matter of fact, make that sink in. Intentionally till up your soul and let that reality penetrate our lives. Because the more that reality, this this one truth, that we have avoided great doom and gained a great reward as that sinks in and takes root and pervades our life by faith, you...
we will understand experientially the power and the passion that are contained in the proposition, the truth of the gospel. The good news about obtaining righteousness by faith in Christ. Because we too, like Paul, are to be a people joyfully consumed with the good news that has saved us. Yeah. So let me give us a few practical ways to let the truth of God and the good news to sink in. First one is this. You must believe and know the gospel. You must know that first that you're a sinner and that God is holy, that He will turn His anger one day towards sin, that Jesus died so that you could avoid. He died our death, your death, so that we could avoid that wrath. And by putting our faith in Christ, we are counted righteousness. And then we begin to assimilate His righteousness into our lives by hearing and heeding His Word, doing what He says. And if you have not done that, I would encourage you to talk to somebody who can help you understand that. I'm more than happy to, and others are, I know, as well. And so please, if you have not done that, and you have more questions, I would encourage you to talk to somebody you know who knows about that. If you have come to a place where you believe and know the gospel, then I would encourage you to spend some time just giving thanks. Writing down your gratitude for the gospel, the good news about Jesus, and maybe even recounting your first calling from the Lord when you responded and what were some of the initial things that He rescued you out of? Mindsets or behaviors or ideals or destructive patterns and that you would say thank you Or even if you were little, and maybe some of you who grew up in Christian homes, you might recognize some of your temptations, and you would say, I, if, if this temptation that regularly besets me were beset loose without you rescuing me, where would that go? Look at the doom from which you have saved me, and give Him thanks. So if you don't know and believe the Gospel then my admonishment is to know it, to come to God through Christ. If you do know, then express gratitude and thanks. A second way that I would encourage you to let the truth of God's good news sink in is to preach the gospel to yourself. Recall some of these verses that we've been talking about. Look in the book of Galatians and Colossians, all the beginnings of the epistles, Philippians, Ephesians, where Paul begins to express who we are because we are in Christ. And then grab a hold of some of these verses and then write them down. Maybe consider memorizing one. Nonetheless, the book is really good. A Gospel Primer, P.R. I-M-E-R, 
by Milton Vincent. And he just walks through preaching the gospel to yourself. Get it, read it, consume it. It's really uh, helpful. And then lastly, here's where it gets really powerful. Begin to apply the gospel to various areas of your life. I was reading a friend of mine who wrote some questions that we might ask ourselves about the gospel and how it has impacted and how we work it into our lives. And um, I put these at the end of your notes. And he says, try to answer such questions as, how does the gospel help me ask forgiveness or be generous or make me less critical of others? How does it do that? How does the gospel help me to see my desires for the sinful things that they are differently? How does the gospel of Jesus empower me to say no to temptation? How does the gospel help me to lighten up about my shortcomings, my personality quirks, or even my mistakes? How does the gospel do that? How does the gospel empower me to love hard people or to do hard things? These are just some small list of ways that righteousness by faith can change everything for us. And so know the gospel, give thanks for it, preach it to ourselves, work it into our mind and hearts, and practically live it. In closing, Jerry Bridges is author of a book called The Discipline of Grace. And he says this, and I'll close. I hope this resonates with you as it does with me. He says, to preach the gospel to yourself then means that you continually face up to your own sinfulness and then flee to Jesus through faith in his shed blood and righteous life. It means that you appropriate again by faith the fact that Jesus fully satisfy the law of God, that He is your propitiation, realize that all these wonderful promises of forgiveness are based upon the atoning death of Jesus Christ. So church, may we rejoice in the gospel of Christ and teach it to ourselves and run it deep into our heart and lives. And Father, we thank You for Your great kindness to us. May we receive Your Word and Paul's encouragement about the power of the gospel for salvation to all of us who believe. And that your righteousness, Father, is revealed from faith for faith. And we want to be the kind of people who bring you joy and delight the righteous that live by faith. Jesus, thank you for making that possible and giving us the Holy Spirit um, that we can join you and participate in this work that you're doing in us. Amen. Amen.